0: You can turn with me in your Bibles to, to Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, where we're going to be spending most of our time. As uh, Pastor Ted prayed, and as we prayed with the youth group this morning in Sunday school, been praying for Pastor Keith and for Naya and for the, uh, those from Grace Reformed Baptist here in town in their missions trip to uh, Mexico. Um, they're kind of going into New Mexico, and then each day they kind of jump across the border into Mexico. And we'll do vacation Bible schools, some physical kind of work, and help out some churches down there and, and share the good news. And as I was thinking about that, you know, they left really early Friday morning. And I've, I've uh, so Friday at work, I was thinking about them, and I'd, I'd pray for them as my day went along. And um, I don't know how many of you have had the, the really long car rides. And maybe some of you, I know we have a, some people that drive trucks and stuff here. So you might think, ah, 20 hours one way, 20 hours back, 40 hours, that's nothing. But uh, if you've ever done the, the trip in the 15-passenger van where you're jammed in the back, it's good times right there. And I was even thinking about it. I thought about it yesterday, yesterday as well. prayed for him off and on, and I thought, hmm, you're in the back row. There's four in the back row. Air conditioning's not working that well. I wonder how things are rolling for him. You know, maybe your stomach gets a little upset, and, the, and you hear the announcement, hey, and 117 miles we will pull over again. And you think, oh. Oh boy, and I was thinking about, so why would, and we actually did get a little bit of an announcement that Naya wasn't, the old stomach wasn't feeling too good, and we were thinking about that as we prayed for him this morning, and I was thinking about that. Why would Pastor Keith and Naya go on this trip? You know, why, why would they be even be interested in doing something like that? Are they, you know, because in addition to them going and the 40 hours round trip, they paid to go. No one said, hey, for a thousand bucks, you want to jam yourself in this vehicle and spend a week? No, they they, they pay their own money to go. Why would they do that? Well, are they, are they really, really bored? Well, they're not. They're busy. They've got a lot going on. They help out their families, jobs, all those things. Why would they go? Do they really love to travel? Well, I know they actually both do like to travel, but if they were going to travel, they would not travel in that way, I'm sure. And in the case, at least of Pastor Keith, he'd probably be in Cuba, not, uh, not Mexico, but he likes Mexico as well. Are they, are they thinking I can earn themselves to get in good with God? Because there's a lot of people all over the world that would say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this good thing, and then God will like me more, and I can earn a little bit of merit with Him. Well, neither of them believe that a bit. Why would they go? Well, I'm going to say that both of them, I think increasingly for Naya, and certainly for years for Pastor Keith, they see living life as a means to worship God. We sang songs of the worth of God and worshiping him and seeing his value and seeing where we are and see where he is over and over and over this morning. And there's a purpose to that. The, the increasing value that Naya sees, that Pastor Keith sees, and that I want each of us to see of living life as a means of worshiping God. A life not focused on personal comforts, on slights by others, On drama at work, or at worry over the future, Uh, I had asked for the scripture reading to include Philippians into our study here because I think it helps our thinking. And we could I could reread all of it, but just one verse if we could think about Philippians 1:27. Paul says, "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." Now, some people would say that "worthy" would connect it to you're going to get some more value, or or God's going to like you more. Hey, I'm going to earn some merit with Him, and that's not what it's saying. The idea of worthy is to be consistent with, to represent well. Paul is saying, hey, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I, I go back and forth. I know for me it's, it's far better to be with Christ, but for your sake, I, could, I should be here and I can help you out. Whatever God decides, I am good with that because my life is about Christ. And we can look at that and we can say, wow, Paul, go get him.' But when we think about our life, we do need to contemplate. What do I say about that? What do I feel about that? How do my actions represent that? And when Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy, he's telling us that it's not just about P.K. and Nea. It's not just about pastors. It's not just about missionaries like the the Baldwins or or H.D. and and, and J.J. It's, It's not just about the Ahmadis that all believers, every believer, have the mindset that this life is worship. Now, today I'm, I'm sure we have a pretty diverse group. We I, I surely have people here that say, you know, I really don't believe any of this. I'm just here with friends or family or something, or maybe I've been coming here for years, but I don't believe any of this. We surely have other people that are saying, well, yeah, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of this kind of thing before, but I, I mean, whatever, you know, you can believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. I'm sure there's other people in here that are very serious, and they say, wow, I've been studying this and thinking about this. And I think on any given day, boy, how can I please God more? But wherever you are at, I would encourage you to think about your life. And I will contemplate my life, and I will say, where am I at with this? Does drama rule my life? Do goals rule my life? Does envy rule my life? Does personal success rule my life? What rules me? What drives me? What is my life about? Just a, a little bit of background. Just We're going to be getting into Romans and just we have some context. Um, Romans is really split up into to two different main sections. The first 11 chapters are just kind of over and over. Here is the grace of God. And it's a lot of just statements of truth. Not nearly as much, let me tell you what to do, but a whole lot of this is true about God. This is true about God. Here is what God did. Here is what God expects. Here is what God desires. A lot of just truth, 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 and then the last four chapters, starting with verse with chapter twelve, are a lot more commands. It's saying, okay, well, you understand those first eleven chapters have all about God's grace and all these truth statements. Then the last four chapters have, here's what you need to do with that. You've got it. You've got a decision before you. What are you going to do with these truth statements? There's commands on how to interact with people. There's commands on on judging or not judging, being subject to authorities, interacting with others, caring for the weak, enduring. And Romans sets up at a really, really basic level that Christianity is not compatible with what is really popular today, this lone wolf, I do what I want to do, I do my own thing, and when religion intersects with that, cool, but I really do my own thing because I'm just kind of, if I'm not a rebel, I got a little bit of that going on and I do my own thing. These last four chapters say over and over, hey, if you believe these truth statements, then this is how your life needs to change. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2 is really just kind of this snapshot or introduction, cliff notes, if you will, of the, of the last four chapters. It says it's going to give us this little picture in these first two verses. It's going to kind of look back to God's grace. And it's going to look forward to what our actions need to be So our text today is just the basics of that, and the theme would be believers have the opportunity to worship God with our lives. It's going to start off with a command and then give us the means or, or the way that that can be carried out. So let's read verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. And Paul here writes, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we have this request, it's this appeal, or beseech might be the translation that you have, and we, we all get hit up for things in life. Um, I work at a job where I have to beg for money from people, almost continually from businesses, and you're supposed to hang out with people and ask them for money and explain why they should give money to our organization. And I'll tell you, at times it can be wearing, but we we all get appeals, we get hit up for appeals, right? it's whether it's Girl Scout cookies or, you know, sending people to this or going to that, we hear appeals or we give appeals all the time. And what do people say in an appeal? They say, here is what we have in common. See, here is your group of friends and my group of friends, and look at how they they overlap. Hey, don't you want to give us money? And we do those things, or it's done in our community all the time, over and over and over. But Paul isn't saying here, he's not saying you have to because of me. He's making an appeal based on something else. So he's he's saying, hey, my fellow Christians, not based on our history, not based on what I've done for you, not based on you owing me anything. My request is based on the mercy of God. Now, we know that Paul isn't opposed to using, uh, hey, you owe me, at other places in his writing. If you look in uh, Philemon, if you look in 2 Corinthians, or probably other places as well, he'll say, hey, I appeal to you, I ask you to do this, and remember, you're my child in the faith. Or, hey, remember what I have done for you. Hey, remember how I have beseeched God on your behalf, this is what you need to do. Paul does that in other places, but here he makes no reference to that. He says, I'm going to beseech you by something. I'm going to beseech you and request to you based on God's mercy in light of all that I have taught, those truth statements of the previous 11 chapters. And he's going to push us and push our thinking in, these, in the rest of the chapters we won't cover today. Can you obey God without the Spirit living and working in you? And he's going to be pushing us, no you cannot, it is impossible. I think most of us acknowledge and know the failure of, I'm just going to try harder. Or I'll, I'll just do a little bit better tomorrow. Well, yeah, I, I, I need to adjust this a teeny bit. And one of the things that Paul sets up in the letter to the Romans is, You can't just adjust your way into good with God. You can't just tweak things a little bit to be good with God. He is saying only by the mercy of God can this happen. And we need to acknowledge that. What are we supposed to do? Well, I have a statement I wrote down here that mercy impels and enables obedience. So mercy pushes and enables obedience. And without it, we cannot be obedient to God. And and, and, uh, think back to the Old Testament because this is not a new concept. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, okay? Um, People sin. So you've got got the, the problem of sin and the answer is found in what? Well, we have this sacrificial system based on the future work of Christ whereby a person could say, I am washed, I am clean, I do not have this guilt on my head right now. And for many of us, if you've grown up in church, You're so used to hearing that, you say, okay, yeah, Old Testament sacrifice, yeah, Old Testament sacrifice, okay. But picture an Israelite living, let's say, um, maybe a a little bit after the time of Moses. And you've got Canaanite groups that haven't been completely wiped out, and they're living over here, or living over here, or living over here. And you see what they're trying to do to absolve themselves of sin, or try to, to get their gods to do something for them. And we could talk about all kinds of rites and things that people did, but if you fast forward a little bit from that time and you look at like the time of Elisha and they're dancing around and, and uh, you know, hey, how are we going to light this fire? And he says, hey, you know, they're cutting themselves and blood's coming out and they're screaming and yelling and dancing around. Hey, maybe you need to cry out a little li- louder, Elisha says to them. Look at the things people have done historically to absolve themselves of sin. And the Bible reminds us that only by the mercy of God can that happen. I would... I would actually like to read just a little bit from Leviticus. And you can turn there with me, or you can just listen as I read. But in Leviticus chapter 1, God sets this up. And I I want this mindset to be in all of us. So be thinking of this. I'm going to read the first nine verses of Leviticus 1. It says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of the meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may accept, be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that at the entrance... That is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire in the altar. But its entrails, its legs, he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now we can read that and think, man, back in the day, oh my goodness. But put yourself in the shoes, be a, be a parent or a grandparent, and you're taking, let's say, your 10- your or 12-year-old son to the sacrifice. And you're, you're walking up to the sacrifice, and you're, you're leading, in this case, a bull, which I hope would be pretty gentle. But you're bringing a bull up there, or maybe you're purchasing one there. And if you read more in, Le, in Leviticus, you could get to, it'd have a, a lamb or something from the flock. Or it'd get to a dove. But if you lead it up there and, and the kid is saying to you, now wait, what are we doing again here? Wait, er, I, you know, we've we raised, we have this herd of cattle, and let's say we've got, you know, 30 bull calves and we've raised this one, we've raised all of them, but this one's without blemish. Wasn't this one we talked like, well, maybe we'll keep him as a herd sire because he's really good and we're, we're bringing him along? And we go up to there and, why are we doing this? And you're saying to your son or grandson, well, I've sinned, and sin is significant. I've got a holy, we have a holy God. God has expectations on our lives. God has done so much for us. Look at creation. Look at how we've been sustained. Look at our neighbors over there. Look at how he brought us to this good land, but I've sinned, and God has made a way according to his mercy that I can find forgiveness, and you lead it up to there, and you put your hand on its head, and it's killed. Have you you been around when an animal died? This is not some small thing that your kid's going to be like, hey, are you almost done because I've got things I need to do? This would be a stark thing for someone to see. And then they're cutting it up and the blood is there and they're arranging fire. And the fire's burning it up and they're, you know, it's moving entrails over here and putting this over here. And that kid is saying, whoa, sin is a big deal. Saying, whoa, our God is great. Wh- why do we need mercy? What's this atonement that it talks about here. And, and this can be a pleasing aroma to God. And we're reminded it is a mercy, grace-filled thing that God provided away. That those Israelites were not stuck living in their sins saying, I've got guilt, I've got guilt, I've got guilt, and nothing can be done about it. God gave them a picture based on the future work of Jesus by which they could see forgiveness an aroma that pleased God, something that is not small. And so then we have in our reading here this verse that says, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So had Paul seen sacrifice? Absolutely. He was, he was born north of, of Israel, but certainly they would come down to the temple. Uh, if you read earlier on in the Old Testament, it would be three times a year there were Big sacrifices that would be made, primarily by the time of Jesus, it'd be maybe once a year. But Jews from all over, especially the men, would be traveling and seeing sacrifice. How about Paul's audience? So he's writing to Rome at this time. So Paul had seen sacrifice over and over and over. He had put his his hand—I have no doubt—on the heads of, of animals and birds and for sacrifice, right? But he's writing to an audience that's that's a mixed audience there there in Rome. There were Jews and Gentiles, and I. Guarantee, many of those Jewish men especially had been to Israel, had been to Jerusalem, had seen sacrifice. And when they read that, they read it differently than we naturally do when they say, my life can be a living sacrifice. I've seen the blood, I've smelled the smells, I've heard what's going on. My life can be a sacrifice. And then he calls it, an amazing thing he calls it worship he says which is your spiritual worship now when when we think worship what do we typically think well if i i'm talking to somebody at work and i know they go to this church or that church say hey you know how was your church service or what did your pastor preach on and I'll, or or you know how how is worshiping this past sunday and a lot of times people say oh the worship services at our church was great. The worship at our church was great. And oftentimes we mentally, automatically connect it to music. And that is, that is a wonderful thing to do. That is praise. To the praise of His glory, right? That's what we were singing this morning. We also see, and rightly so, that worship can be giving financially to God. Giving sacrificially to God? Absolutely. Giving of the first fruits to God? Absolutely. That is worship. How about driving in your car in your pickup and as you're going maybe you're listening to music or maybe you're just praying to God and you're saying God you are worth it you are amazing this this is God that's worship how about praising the Lord maybe let's say on on our Wednesday night service we get to pray together as a church and we say hey praise the Lord for for Titus Emery look at the healing that's happening in his life I almost knocked him over a couple weeks back going through the nursery and kind of plowed him over kind of caught him too but everything was good And I'm like, whoa! Praise God, look at him now as opposed to some months back, huh? And we want more healing, absolutely, but look at what God is doing. Those are are all excellent, perfect, great ways to worship. But none of that is mentioned right here, per se. It's saying your life, my life right now is a form of sacrifice worship to God. And so when I'm at work... When you're at school, when you're dealing with a difficult child, when you're struggling with health, when you're, when you're interacting with a neighbor and you're trying to show Christ and it's just not going as well as you would like, we don't say, I'm so frustrated or get bogged down. We say, God, I might not understand all what this is supposed to look like, but I want this to be worship unto you. I want, I want this day to be a sacrifice unto you. I want this day to be a picture of putting my hand on this lamb's head and saying, this day is about you. I want this to be a sacrifice unto you. And so when you have that rotten day at work, when you have that unbelievably frustrating time with your, with your child, when you have whatever going on with your health, it doesn't mean that we won't get discouraged. It doesn't mean that we won't have sorrow. It doesn't mean any of those things. Emotions are a gift from God. But we have the opportunity to say, I might not understand this, but Lord, I want this to be a worshipful Sacrifice to you, you are God. And we have the opportunity to do that with our lives. What an unbelievable gift. So the question now is, how is my life, how is your life doing as worship? So if you even just think back one day to yesterday, and you review the day in your mind, with a holy God looking at me, how is my day of worship? Sacrifice unto him. I think all of us can say, I fall short. And we do cry out under the mercy of Jesus Christ, right? But I think it also pushes us to say, most of us know these two verses right here. But oh, we have a tendency of compartmentalizing life and saying, well, yeah. Yeah, that's, I do that. But do I really do it as my life is unto God? I have a quote here by John Christostom, who's an old-school um, church father from back in the day. He'd be a um, contemporary of, of uh, he'd be about the year 400. That so gives you a little bit of, of an idea of when, of when he would be. Uh, I guess Jerome would probably be writing his Latin Vulgate about that time, so it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. Here's what John Christostom says. In answering to this text, he says, and how is the body, it may be said, to become a sacrifice? How, how, how is this even supposed to happen? He says, let the eye look on no evil thing, and it hath become a sacrifice. Let thy tongue speak nothing filthy, and it hath become an offering. Let thy hand do no lawless deed, and it hath become a whole burnt offering here. Chrysostom awesome is pushing something here. He's pushing that we can have something that is holy and acceptable and, and a sweet aroma to God. We agree that we're saved by faith, not by works. All positional holiness is based on Christ. But oh, too often as Christians, we can say, hey, it's all grace, and, and say, well, I can live then however I want. That's uh, increasingly becoming the norm in greater Christianity. You cry out to the grace of God, which is tremendous, and then you live however you want, which is not tremendous And not biblical. We don't want to look like legalists, and we should not be. We don't want to look like legalists, so we make no demands. But the Bible is full of demands. If we even just look in the chapter we're in, in um, Romans 12, if you want to look with me there, look, look at verse 9. It says, Let love be genuine. That's a command. Abhor what is evil. A command. Hold fast to what is good. A command. Look at all these other commands. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If your thinking is to the point of, hey, it's all grace and I just live my life however I want, the Bible is full of commands. And in no way do we as pastors or leaders here want to be legalistically saying, hey, and if you do this, then God will like you more. But, oh, my, there's a whole lot in Scripture of God saying, this is what I desire. My child, will you not follow me? You can see those over and over and over in Scripture. So that is the command. That's what, what we have been told. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And next we're going to see some how-tos, the, the means of. What does that look like of this command to present our body. So verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We first have a negative and then we have a positive. The negative is do not be conformed. Well, what does conforming look like? Well, I'm going to back us up a little bit in Romans um, Look with me in Romans 1, you're, you're right near there, so look with me in Romans 1, and, and you want to read a section that lets us know what it is to be conformed to this world. This is a pretty good picture right here, and, and please let us not just say, well, I'm glad I didn't live back then, because I think there's probably some parallels to our world today, and there has been consistently in our world since the rebellion of Adam and Eve. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And then God continues. God hands them over to sin, starting in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to their lusts of their bodies, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And we could go on in reading and it talks about liars and gossips and haughty and murders. And some of those we can look at them and say, boy, I'm glad I haven't done that one and that one. Then there's other ones like insolent, selfish, those kind of ones. And we think, well, wait, wait. This is a, a picture of what we're all guilty of. Guilty of in our hearts if not having done the actual physical action. Rebellion against God is a really ugly thing. And Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. I, I talked with a pastor friend this week. I actually ran into him, and, uh, or I was near him, I didn't run into him. I was near him at a gas station in the thriving metropolis of Dundee. I hope that many of you have been there before. And uh, I was talking to him and I said, hey, uh, I saw this guy who had been murdered. They said he was homeless, but they said he was a, a member or former member of your church. What, uh, what's going on? Because at my job, you know, we try to have a pretty good connection on, on the homeless and I, I didn't know this guy's name. And he said, oh. And this was before a lot of this stuff came out in the newspaper. And I said, so what's going on? Is he really a member of your church or, you know, what's going on there? And he said, uh, oh, this, this guy grew up in our church. His relatives went to our church for years and years and years. They were a serious part of the church. This guy's heard the truth over and over and over. And I said, what happened? And he said, rebellion. He said, legal and illegal addictions, um, immorality, abandoned his family, abandoned his kids, um, and then he was shot and he was dumped on the side of a road. And I don't say that to be uncompassionate because I, I have compassion on the family. Um, he said the family, you know, the, the, the to be ex wife, or the, they were going through a divorce, I guess, um, was having to pay a bunch of the bills. And I just looked at him and he looked at me. And he's been at that church for several years and he said, Rebellion against God, it's disgusting. And I agree. And many of us think of rebellion as, oh, that thing we did when we bought a motorcycle when we were 17, or, oh, I grew my hair out longer, or whatever. Rebellion against God is a horrific thing. And I tell my kids, I see every day at my job, the end results of rebellion against God. And we might not see that type of ugly, maybe at your job or in your life, but I will tell you, the end results of rebellion against God are horrific. And Paul is not saying this to hinder anyone's fun, to limit anyone's joy or enjoyment of life. He's saying, if you want the abundant life, I mean, read Romans chapter 8. If you want the abundant life, follow Jesus Christ. God is not keeping us from anything good. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. It is good, the gifts He gives His children. But rebellion, a horrific thing, and you might, you might say to yourself, well, I, you know, I'm not a rebel like that. I've never done drugs. I've never done this. I've never done that. Rebellion can be anywhere from this outward, outward, outward stuff to the secret rebellion of the heart. It's anyone saying, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go without God or, eh, I mean, God, you can a little bit here. Rebellion is a horrifying, horrifying thing. And if that's you today, you know, Pastor Ted read the Catechism, and if I had perfect recall, I would, I would quote it off to you today, but at a very basic level, what is salvation? What is the answer for a rebel of which all of us once were or are right now? What is the answer? Acknowledge and repent of our sin and say, Jesus Christ, you died on the cross for me. I call out to you. You took my sin upon yourself. Forgive me. I want you to rule my life. I say this to the teenagers all the time. We say these terms, Lord Jesus Christ, and we say them so tritely sometimes. The Lord means ruler. The ruler, the king, the divine one, the one who directs me here and directs me there. Repentance and faith in the Lord, in the ruler. So let's, let's continue on here. So it says, do not be conformed. But be transformed. Now, we've been talking about trans- transformation repeatedly throughout the message here. But be transformed, be changed, be made new by the renewal of your mind. And this isn't just saying, hey, if you have better thoughts, you'll be a better you. It's really saying, as a Christian, you have a whole new way of thinking, a whole new focus, a whole new ruler of your life. Your, your mind is going to be changed, your life is going to be changed, your heart is going to be changed, you're going to be transformed and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect aren't those lovely words right there if you were talking with your kids and you said you know what you know what you could do for me you could follow Jesus Christ and you know what that is that's like what is it, what is what does the the proverb say like like apples of gold and pictures of silver is the word of God to me but look at that When you're following Him, when you're trusting Him, when you're transformed by Him, it is good and acceptable and perfect or complete or right. And it says when doing so, um, you're going to be able to discern what is the will of God. Now. Um, I don't want to go too far afield and spend too much time. Is this the moral? I re- did a, quite a bit of reading this week, and there were some that argued for the moral will of God. There were some that were saying this is more the big picture will of God. But if we could, if we could boil it down to something quite simple, many of us in life will say, God, I, I want your will to be done, and I, and I don't always know what that should be. We know what the big picture serious things are, right? God desires that people repent. God desires that people get saved. God desires that people change. They're conformed to his image, sanctification. We can, we can talk about those things. But we all have things where we're saying, God, I've got choices in front of me. I've got choices in front of me. These are not sinful choices. I want you to guide me. We talk about the will of God right here. It says, as we are not conformed to the world, and as we are transformed into his image... God's going to be directing us and guiding us. And we talk about the Holy Spirit guiding into all truth. We talk about the Holy Spirit comforting. Letting, as we we read the word, as we pray, letting the Holy Spirit kind of wash us with direction and guidance and rightness. That's what Paul is telling us here in Romans chapter 12. So that's the basics of life as worship. The command to present our bodies as sacrifice and the means to do so. What does it look like not being conformed and being transformed? And again, with a diverse audience, you might be saying here, okay, so you know, what does that change? You know, and some people might be saying, wow, I, I, I want to I change what I'm doing in this part of my life. I want to, to think about God and his rule in, in this part of my life and in this part of my life. And he needs to rule all of my life. Other people might be saying, I mean, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I've, I've got a neighbor though. Let me tell you about my neighbor. Boy, he's not doing so well. Don't we have that temptation and tendency to do things like that? But I want to leave us with some thinking about this life as sacrifice. If you can turn with me or I can just turn there and read and you can just listen. It's the last book of the Old Testament and it deals with sacrifice quite a bit in Malachi. And um, we could read quite a bit in Malachi, but I'll, I will just read, um, I'll read 6 through 14 here. And I want you to think about this life as sacrifice as I read this Old Testament passage. We know that uh, at the conclusion of when Malachi was written, after that there were a little over, a little under 400 silent years until Christ came. I think Malachi was written in like 396, if I, if I recall. So they had about 400 years of of no more message from God. And if you've been, um, think back to Old Testament times and you would have, hey, this, this priest is going to be giving you truth here. This, this prophet is going to be giving you truth here. And you would be, here's a voice from God. Here would be letters, the, what are now our books of the Bible. And hey, we got some letters here. Look at, you know, Obadiah is written here and, and Jonah is written here and, and Psalms are written here. And you're getting this voice from God, this voice from God, this voice from God. And after Malachi, it's dead quiet. There's nothing. How come God isn't speaking? We have those Maccabean wars a couple hundred years after this, and come on, oh, God's going to save us now. We're going to, the Maccabees, these guys, yeah, oh, oh, and now it's even worse. Okay, we've got some freedom now, and oh, we need someone. We need, who's the answer? We need an answer. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he's a voice from God. And John the Baptist's voice from God is speaking, He's walking in the wilderness and he doesn't, he doesn't look and act and he's so direct and he says repent and believe, repent, the kingdom of God is here. People are saying here's a voice from God. Hey, John the Baptist, you're the guy, you're the guy and what does John the Baptist say? I'm not the guy, but I'm coming here to make the way straight for the guy. Here is the guy, here is Jesus Christ, here's the Messiah. I, I'm not even worthy to, to tie his sandals, here is the one, it's Jesus So Malachi would be a book that people would be looking at and saying, how come we haven't had a voice? This is the last one we have here. Why have we not had a voice? What does Malachi say that applies to us today in our thinking of life as sacrifice? Malachi says this to his audience of Israel. He says, "...a son honors his father and a servant his master." If then I am a father, this is God speaking here, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. So, so it's, it's really just talking in their context, not even just like a congregation of people that are saying they're following God. He's saying, hey, you leaders of the congregation, you despise me. You're spitting on me. You're stepping on me. What are you thinking? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? What were they doing at this time? They were saying, hey, I'm bringing this this ram lamb here. And my grandpa, he brought the best one of his flock, but man, that one's worth 200 bucks. And I got one with a bad leg that's worth 65. Come on, 65, we're going to town to get my sins forgiven. You think there's no heart? Where is your heart before God? There are those who would say, hey, in the Old Testament it's just actions and grace doesn't come until the New Testament. That is not so. Where are your hearts? Over and over and over. Because your heart's are evidenced by your actions. What does it say in verse 8? When you offer blind animals on the sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? That the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and you bring as your offering. Shall I accept, God says that, shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. We are a perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ, unblemished perfection. We no longer bring a lamb and say, God, here you go, thank you. What is God asking for in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Really all of Romans 12, 13, 14, 15? He wants your life. Let's pray. Father, we are weak people. And uh, on our best day, we know we can earn no merit with you. Lord, our merit comes from your son, Jesus Christ. We cry out to his worth over and over and over, and we've done it all morning long. We are not worthy, but he is worthy. All praises go to him. But Lord, you've given us an opportunity here. We think of Ephesians chapter 2. It talks about our lives. You know, for by grace we are saved. We're your workmanship. This opportunity to be this, this painting, this masterpiece in our life unto you. We have the opportunity to live a life as a living sacrifice. Father, may our day today and tomorrow and increasingly every day be conformed to the image of your will. Our actions would both represent you and be a sweet savor to you. And we ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ stand and respond.